morning and welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for being patient with us. Right now we're in the, uh, we haven't been in the theater for a couple of months. And we're trying to figure out how things work. And the majority of our volunteers are away at a retreat this weekend. So that's also an added bonus. But we're going to work through it and we'll figure out how everything works. Uh, good morning. My name is Pastor Roger. I'm the uh, teaching pastor here at Uptown Community Church. And if you're visiting, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so uh, we're going to continue on a series. For those of you who uh, don't know, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians for a little bit, and it has been a fun ride. We've had the sex talk. Uh, this morning, we're going to have a different kind of talk. I was going to title the sermon, Does Paul the Apostle Hate Women? And so it, it, it may be a low attendance this morning, but it's going to be a doozy. So you picked a good one to come to. But let's recap what we talked about last week. So last week, Paul was going to talk about this idea of freedom for a couple of chapters. We look at chapter 8 as being representative of that. But what's interesting is, is that everybody's talking about freedom, right? We, we, we talked about that last week, right? I, I mentioned the story about me coming back from Toronto. My daughter and I were at the uh, comic book convention in Toronto, Fan Expo. We're coming back from Toronto, back into Waterloo. on this overpass where these Canadian flags and this banner draped over the overpass that says, Freedom is essential, or, and freedom is vital, or, or some such stuff, right? But what's interesting is that is that Christians have kind of echoed Right? So Paul starts off by talking about meat uh, offered to idols. And again, to us, uh, Westerners, postmoderners, we go meat offered to idols. What does that make a difference? But what Paul tells us is that there's a, a group of people in the Church of Corinth that used to work in temples, in these temples to other gods, Aphrodite, uh, uh, Zeus, whatever it might be. And again, in these temples, they would sacrifice animals, and parts of the animal, uh, the meat, would be taken and it would be sold like, like, a, like a normal butcher. And so Paul is trying to answer this question about what it looks like. But remember, if you're in living in Corinth, what happens is the only way you can really buy good cuts of meat are at these temples. Right? And I said to you, a parallel might be, today we, we expect in our, in our culture, uh, corporate responsibility. We say to ourselves that we want corporations, we want to support corporations that do such and such, whether it might be environmental footprint, you know, their carbon footprint, might be um, how much they pay their employees. That's all sorts of different metrics that we use, right? Well, what Paul is saying here is that back in that day as well, too, the Corinthians were trying to say, well, what is it best for us? How do we go ahead and do it? Now, what's interesting is Paul starts off this conversation talking about freedom. He says, should we eat meat to idols or should we not? But what's interesting, though, is that if we were to have this conversation today, the conversation would go like this. Should we eat uh, uh, meat offered to idols? Well, you have freedom to so do whatever you want, right? That would be how we would respond. But Paul's response is actually quite controversial because Paul says something kind of interesting. He says, if by eating meat, sacrifice to idols, if that offends those with a weaker conscience, I'll never eat meat again. And I told you last week, there's only two things that terrify me, spiders and vegetarianism. That's it. That's all that, that terrifies me, right? So for Paul to say that, he's saying something kind of interesting. And and Michelle Morris, on her commentary on uh, on this particular chapter, really brought in this aspect of uh, this idea of face masks. Now, please understand something. At UCC, uh, during the pandemic, we tried to do and we tried to abide by whatever the mandates were. Uh, one of the things we said about Uptown Community Church was that whatever the owner and the workers of the theater Whatever they required of their patrons, we as a church would follow suit. We would argue, we wouldn't talk about our freedom, we wouldn't talk about, you know, YouTube videos on people giving their comments up. We wouldn't do any of that. But see, what's interesting with the weaker conscience, with this idea of the weaker brother, it's not about weakness as in strength, 
but it's about weakness in the sense of where do we come from, right? So what Paul's saying is those who come from a temple, who participated in that temple life and saw what took place with these animals in these cultic atmospheres, he's saying, well, they have a different path to their salvation through the gospel. And we should honor that and respect that. Then again, we talk, we started off the conversation like we always do with a really weird way of talking about it, and that was with the idea of addictions, right? As I've told you before and I've mentioned again, I've worked with people with addictions for decades now, right? And I've told you before that my my go-to in regards to people with addictions is 12-step programs. I, I think 12-step programs are, in my opinion, in my opinion, one of the most effective tools for overcoming addictions. But one of the things we understand about addictions as well, too, is that when it comes to sobriety of whatever the substance or habit might be, you have to guard against being around people who are going to encourage you to participate in that. So again, the most obvious one is an alcoholic. I've dealt with many alcoholics, and one of the hardest things in the beginning of sobriety is saying to yourself, I can no longer hang out with this group of people because this group of people always go out Friday night to such and such a bar. Or when they have people over, there's tons of alcohol there, and I'm not strong enough to be around them. And this is why, again, a weird kind of thing, this is why a lot of sobriety fails, is because relationships and addictions really go hand in and so what Paul is saying here is really kind of important. He says, I need to consider the needs of the other. I need to think about the other person more than I need to think of myself. And one of the tenets of Christianity, you know, as exemplified by Christ, is self-denial. Take up our cross. And so Paul says, I would rather deny myself meat than put my brother or sister in Jesus in a way of, of, of giving up on the own faith. Which again, I think is quite remarkable. This morning we're gonna we're going to uh, talk about a different aspect, and this is gonna be uh, uh, this is gonna be a tough one for uh, for well for those of you who've been part of UCC, you, you, we're gonna have a lot of content here. But I need to uh, I need to tell you why the portion of scripture we're gonna look at this morning is the most controversial portion of scripture in the entire book of First and Second Corinthians. So let me just put that out there. And so we need to kind of go and kind of drill down and figure out what's going on. But before we do that, let's talk about the Rorschach test. So, for those of you who are in psychology, or have any training in psychology, or have watched any kind of movie, you know what a Rorschach test is, right? A Rorschach test is an inkblot that they ask you to identify. Well, this great article came out a couple years ago on the BBC, saying, uh, what's behind the Rorschach, Rorschach inkblot test? So, you've seen it, but maybe you don't know what it's supposed to be. So, uh, Dr. Mike, uh, Mike Drayton kind of gives us some information, says this. So, what is the Rorschach ink block test. It's simply a set of cards containing pictures of ink blocks that have been folded over on themselves to create a mirror image. The Rorschach is what psychologists call a projective test. The basic idea is that when a person is shown an ambiguous, meaningless image, i.e. an ink blot, the mind will work hard at imposing meaning on the image. The meaning is generated by the mind. By asking the person to tell you what they see in the inkblot, they're actually telling you about themselves or how they project meaning onto the real world. So let's just pause and just kind of unpack that for you. So what uh, Dr. Rorschach did, what he figured out was, is that when you show somebody something kind of abstract, it could be fractal, it could be an inkblot, it doesn't matter, they will see that and their brain will use their own personal filters to interpret what this means. You go, okay, so let me show you a inkblot and you would tell me what you see, I will tell you what I see. What I see is a bat hanging upside down with the bay mask on his face. Now, because I like Batman, I love Batman, uh, this is no one, 
right? So this is this is what we see. But this is what a Rorschach ink blot test looks like. Now you can look at that and say to yourself, I've told you I see, so therefore maybe you see it now. But when you first saw it, you could say, well, that looks like my aunt or my mother, or that looks like the boss that I hate at school, or or teacher I hate at school, boss I hate at work. There you go. Okay. But what's interesting is that's nothing. Your brain is looking at that and interpreting meaning. Now the Rorschach test has lots of controversy behind it, but one thing that does do very effectively is it forces us to impose meaning on something that is meaningless. Now how we interpret that, that's where the controversy comes into it, but I think there's, there's some merit to the idea behind it. Now, uh, a PhD by the name of Mariana uh, uh, Pogacy, maybe that's how you say her last name, I'm not quite sure, but she says this, why are we prone to seeing what we want to see? Recent research published in The Nature of Human Behavior demonstrates how our motivations and desires can give rise to two biases. A perpetual bias when our motivations have a top-down influence on our perceptions and a response bias when we report seeing what we wish to see. The study led by researchers from Stanford University explores how these biases affect our perception. It proposes underlying neurocomputational mechanisms that guide these judgments. That's a huge mouthful, right? But basically, our brains are wired to impose meaning on anything. So, for example, here's a kind of a fun, uh, a little fun thing. If I said to you, for the next week, I want you to see how many times you see the number 21. Well, what's going to happen is 21 now becomes the filter that you, your brain goes into. It could be a license plate, it could be a street address, that you would never notice 21. But now that I ask you to look for 21, you'll see it everywhere. Right? Why? Because that's how our brains work. Now, the question you're asking yourself, but if you're part of UCC, you go, yeah, this is how our paths are rules. But if you're busy with us, you're like, what the heck has this to do with 1 Corinthians? I'm glad you asked. Because one thing I've realized about the Bible is the Bible might be the ultimate Rorschach test of the human condition. What's interesting is that if you study the Bible uh, over any period of time, and again, as I've told you before, I am a bit of an amateur historian. I love history. And so what I've always been interested in is seeing how different ages and stages look at the Bible, right? So 50 years ago, if you look at a commentary 50 years ago, it's very different than the person commenting on the Bible five years ago. Why? Because our backgrounds help us filter the Bible, right? So we go, okay. And I think that makes sense, doesn't it? I think people go, yeah, because there's some things that have happened historically within Christianity that we kind of go, ooh, that's horrible. How could Christians participate in the Crusades, slavery, right? How could Christians be a part of that? You go, yes, of course, that's awful. But we're, we are postmoderns looking back on the age and stage. You go, well, they should know what we know. They will not, right? So the Bible's a bit of a Rorschach test. And you're going to see why this is important uh, in a second here. But the question we want to ask, because we always ask the question before we kind of dive into our series, is this. Do you see God as he is or as you wish him to be? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Oftentimes, when people describe to me what God is like, it's always interesting to me how God likes and hates the exact same things you do. So that God doesn't actually become God, but just become a reflective image of yourself. It's really a kind of type of narcissism, if I could say that as nicely as possible, which I'm not sure if that's possible, right? But when we look at the Bible, we read the Bible, it's like, wow, this is what God is. So I love having conversations with people who are not Christians, who are atheists, or agnostics, or different. I'm always curious, how do you arrive at your understanding of God? 
social media has completely took that over. I've told you this before, right? I see people on social media commenting on the Bible, commenting on, on Christianity, and I'm always like, okay, I know exactly what they're talking about because they have this very narrow sliver of view of what Christianity or God is, and this is what they're talking about. And all I really want to say is that, hey, if you look at a little bit of a larger picture, you may have a different perspective. But again, as you know, I don't get involved with social media controversies as much as I want to. So this morning what we're going to do is, uh, instead of kind of going through the scripture and telling you what it means, I'm just going to read the passage all together once for you, pointing out a couple of things. And then we're going to dive into it. The reason I'm going to do that is as I, as I start reading this uh, next chapter, by the way, it's chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, in case you're wondering, you get your Bibles out or electronic devices. We're just going to go through the first 16 verses of chapter 11. And you're going to see why this is a difficult passage to understand. Okay, so let's just take a look here. And I just want to take a look here at, at verse 2 at the beginning of chapter 11. It says this, I am so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I have passed on to you. By the way, this is Paul the Apostle being sarcastic. Because by the time we get to chapter 11, we have seen all the ways the Corinthians have forgotten that Paul exists and they have totally disregarded his teaching. Remember a couple of chapters ago, Paul says, wait till I get there, right? This time, wait till dad gets home at that moment, right? So when Paul starts this off, he's kind of being sarcastic here because we know by chapter 11, the Corinthians, the Corinths, have completely forgotten everything that Paul has talked about. Now let's take a look at verses 3 to 6. That's where it gets interesting. But there's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, the head of, their, uh, the head of a woman is a man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. Because this is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut off. Or head shaved, she should wear a head covering. Do you see why this is going to be a fun one to talk about this morning? Now, fun fact. I throw that out there. I don't know if the facts are that fun, but I think they are. There's a whole subset of Christianity that propagate head coverings for women. You can go to, I, I believe, so don't don't get me wrong. If I'm wrong, this I can be wrong. But I think it's called uh, womensheadcoverings.org or headcoveringsforwomen.org or something like that. Anyways, it is an entire website devoted to the biblical mandate that women should wear head coverings in every church that doesn't have a head covering for women. You are living in apostasy according to scripture. Looking at that, they could be correct. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory. And women reflects God's glory. Uh, and, and the woman reflects man's glory. Apologies. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show she is under authority. You know, this verse never gets read at weddings. I always wonder why that is, but I always thought, you know, if you're looking for a good wedding verse, uh, this one might, might, might end up the shortest wedding in the history. Okay, um, again, let's go to verse 11 and 12. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Three more verses, and then we'll jump into this and unpack this. Verse 13 to 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? 
And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if everyone, if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. So, for any of you guys have uh, long hair, man buns, or anything like that, yeah, that's very good. Woo -woo. Uh, just so you know, you're going to hell. Uh, that's, uh, and again, I'm just being scriptural here, right? And all you women who are not wearing head coverings, you also will go with the man buns to hell as well, too, and that's that's as it should be. Now, this is important. Right? This is past the scripture. And, you know, funny story. I was this close to skipping over it. But I thought, nah, this is going to be fun. And the reason it's going to be fun is this is actually going to help us to kind of dig into how we understand the Bible. Now, before we jump into it, let me just show you what some commentators say about just this picture past the scripture. And there's going to be lots of stuff on the screen, but relax. I'll read together. But I, I want to show you some commentators on this, right? This is this. This passage dealing with honorable attire for prayer and prophecy is one of the most difficult passages in the letter due to in part to Paul's use of expressions and ideas that he apparently expects to be transparent to the Corinthians, but which have been opaque to most readers ever since. Uh, Craig Lomberg says this, This passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. Further, a survey of the history of interpretation reveals how many different exegetical options there are for a myriad of questions and should inspire a fair measure of tentativeness on the part of the interpreter. The complexity of, of 11 2 to 16 continues to vex, we don't use the word vex very often anymore, but I think I remember that that, vex modern interpreters and its comments about women rile many modern readers. The danger lurks that their interpreters will try to make it say what they would like it to say. Rorschach. Two more and then we'll jump into it. Bill Milberg, who I'll be referring to a bit later on as well, says this. For example, there are a number of key terms which we really are not fully certain of, and there are some phrases which are still quite up in the air. For example, what exactly does because of the angels in verse 10 mean and refer to? Plenty of options have been offered here over the centuries and is still being hotly discussed, and what exactly does Paul mean by appealing to nature in verses 14 to 15? Gordon Fee, by the way, Gordon Fee, when it comes to New Testament commentary, he's like the LeBron James of New Testament studies. You don't know who he is. Two guys, Gordon Fee and F.F. Uh, Bruce. Uh, you could throw an N.T. Wright. That would be the LeBron, the Kobe, and uh, the Michael Jordan of New Testament studies. Just in case you're wondering, Gordon Fee says this. Along with the larger contextual questions, this passage is full of notorious exegetical difficulties, including one, the logic of the argument as a whole, which in is related to two, our uncertainty about the meaning of some absolutely crucial terms, and three, our uncertainty about prevailing customs, both in the culture in general and in the churches in particular, including the whole complex question of early Christian worship. Paul's response assumes understanding between them and him at several key points, and these matters are therefore not addressed. Thus, the two crucial contextual questions, what was going on and why, are especially difficult to reconstruct. Whew! Okay. Now, do you see why I'm giving you that before I kind of jump into here? One of the things that's interesting to me about the Bible and how we interpret the Bible is what's interesting is that most people will tend to give a lot more importance and weight to verses in the Bible than agree with what they agree. Lots of people will ignore passages of Scripture that disagree with what they believe. I have said to you as your pastor, as I've said to you as, you know, it's funny, pastors and, 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 and uh, teachers at church, they have all different kind of subsets. Some are really 
great joke tellers. I'm, I'm just okay. Uh, some are, are really good storytellers. Ah, right? But the area that I think I'll give myself an A in is, 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 is Bible teaching. Right? Uh, whenever I get asked to speak at a retreat or, 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 or a camp or a conference, I always say to them at the beginning, just so you know, I'm a Bible teacher first and foremost, so be careful if you invite me because that's where I'm going to go. And the reason I say this is because most Bible conferences want to think stories or other kind of stuff, whatever, it, 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 that's fine either way. point is simply this, is that what I've told you as a, as, as, as a Bible teacher to you is that first foremost, I'm a student of the Bible, right? Which means I don't really understand everything that's going on, so I try to dig in and get that for you. But two, I don't try to omit or, or overemphasize a passage of scripture. I've said to you before that to understand the Bible properly, you have to take the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the letters, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and find harmony among the three. And the reason that's important is this keeps us from saying, no, no, women should wear head coverings, to, no, no, this is, this is how it should be. We shouldn't eat, uh, we should be co eating kosher. You know, no, no bacon for us, right? Um, it's a funny story about the bacon. My, my daughter, Olivia, uh, she gets different uh, uh, obsessions as far as food goes. My wife is the same way. This morning, my wife made an avocado smoothie. I don't know what that is. It sounds gross to me. But uh, she comes out of blue like, hey, I saw a TikTok. Whenever she says I saw a TikTok, I'm almost terrified anyways. She's like, I want to make an avocado smoothie. My daughter, Olivia, for some reason, has gotten to bacon. She'll make an entire package of bacon and just eat it. So the other day, I said to her, just so you know, if you're Jewish, you couldn't do that. She's like, I'm a Gentile dad. It doesn't matter. Okay, good enough. That's, that's a sound uh, exegetical argument, right? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at three issues here. There's, there's, they're kind of big ones, right? The first one is headship, right? This is a really important topic to talk about because if what Paul is saying here is a complete truth, then we have to really say to ourselves, uh, what does it look like for Christ followers, married couples, to have this idea of headship? The second thing we're looking at is head coverings. That seems kind of important because Paul kind of goes through that more and more. And the third category we need to look at is women. Does Paul the Apostle hate women? Well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. We're about to find out. So the first thing we're going to take a look at is the word head um, and headship. And it comes from a Greek word, kaphel. Right? Now, kaphel is actually an interesting word. Let's go, we're going to unpack what this means here, or, or try to at least. But let me show you a little background on this word, kaphel. One evangelical scholar has gone through 2,000 336 uses of the word in extra-biblical documents from the writings of 36 Greek authors trying to get a handle on how it should, could be used. Now, one of the things you may not know, but when we try to understand the New Testament is called Koinonia Greek, is we want to see how it's used in non-biblical settings. Because this, this language was not just used to write the Bible, it was used to write any Greek documents in the first and second centuries. So we go, okay, so how do non-Christian Greek writers, how do they use this word? Well, what's interesting is, is there's not really consensus amongst this word as well, too. Anthony Thistleton, in his massive 1,450-page commentary on 1 Corinthians, spends 50 pages on this portion of scripture, with an entire 10 pages devoted to just this one Greek word and its multiple meanings. This is not intended uh, to, this is not indeed a lightweight matter. So you get that, right? So basically, when Paul uses this word of headship, it, it becomes this kind of uh, uh, it becomes kind of a hard thing to understand because how this word is translated is not really there isn't a consensus. Uh, Jeanette Fogarty and her commentary on this is this: the Greek word translated head in this verse is kaphale, 
As Philip Payne notes in the Koine Greek, in use of Paul's time, Kephel would not have been read as leader or to have authority over. He and others contend Kephel is better understood as source, like the head of a river. In Greco-Roman culture, women were generally dependent on men as their source of life in society. Men provided safety and financial security, husbands for their wives, fathers for their daughters. So you go, okay, that makes sense. In first century Roman culture, it was very patriarchal. And we go, yeah, that's absolutely what took place back then. And because of that, men could own things. Women left their extent, but for the most part, it was men. So therefore, we go, okay, what does that look like, and how do we understand that in today's context? Um, let's, come, let's continue on. There are many cultural and social issues uh, discussed by Paul here, which appear to have some uh, extent at least lost on us. Cultural considerations are certainly important, but by now it should be obvious that we are not fully clear on all the cultural and social practices taking place some 2,000 years ago. And even if we were, the question remains is how do they translate in quite different cultures today? The English word head comes from the Greek word kephal. But as any first year Greek student knows, the question is, how is kephal best translated and understood? Does it mean a literal or figurative head? Or both? If metaphorical, we can translate it in many ways, such as authority, leader, chief, top, preeminent, formal source, origin, etc. To understand why this is important. Now, what's interesting about this, and the reason I thought this, this passage of scripture would be a good test for us, is because we look at this and we go, oh, there's entire movements of, of women head covering movements. And actually, they have gorgeous stores where you can buy and they tell you how to wrap. There's YouTube videos that tell you how to, how to, how to wrap your head. Uh, okay, that's kind of cool. Right? So there's, there's a whole industry behind it. But the question I had to ask myself was, Oftentimes, people will say with the Bible, well, this is cultural and this is no longer applicable today. And the question I always ask is, what's the rules that you use to come to that conclusion? Because those rules can be applied to, um, we did the sex talk a couple of weeks ago. Well, those rules are used to apply to that. Well, that's just an ancient, old, Middle Eastern, you know, whatever. It doesn't apply to us Christianers today, uh, Christian Westerners today. And I always say, well, well what's, what's, what, how do you come to that, right? For those of you who are teachers or those who go back to school, show me the math, right? I don't care what the answer is. I want to know how did you arrive at that answer. So the question about head coverings for me is like, well, is this a clear cut or is it cultural? Well, I thought to myself, well, how else is kephal used in the New Testament? Well, here are some examples of how kephal is used and how it's interpreted in the New Testament. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 36, um, do not even say, by my head, for you can't turn one hair uh, white or black. This is this, uh, Jesus talking about oaths made by the head, which again is, is more of an Arabic Middle Eastern uh, thing. So John was beheaded in the prison and his kephal was brought on a tray given to the girl who took it to her mother. So again, is Paul talking that we should behead women? Gosh, I hope not. Um, the soldiers wove a crown of horns and put it on his kephal and they put a purple robe on him. First uh, Corinthians 12.21 Again, the same letter. The eye can never say to the head, I don't need you. The kephal can say to the feet, I don't need you. And again, 1 Corinthians 11, and the head of Christ is God. So, when we look at the idea of kephal, we realize that there isn't a consistency or even a, a, a kind of a boundaries that we can say, well, kephal means this. So we go, oh, okay, so it's a little bit more complex than that. Now, let's go on to head coverings, because we, we need to talk about this idea as well, too. Now, what's interesting about head coverings is something kind of comes up in here. Philip Brown II, which I think is kind of a powerful, very common stuff in the second. I, I, I 
actually caught myself in second, even though I'm only the first. But still, I, I like that idea, right? Or maybe the third. Yeah. Anyways, okay. The language Paul uses is unusual in some places and ambiguous in others. For example, the phrase in verse 4, having on our, our, our down head, lacks an explicit direct object to identify what's down in the head. Since this is the only occurrence of this phrase without an explicit direct object in all extant Greek literature, up to and including the first century, 80 to 155, it is not a simple matter to determine its meaning. Let me pause there. Here's what he's saying. Some of the phrasing that Paul uses around his idea of head covering, it's the only time it appears in the Bible. Just so you know, when we study scripture and we, 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 we translate into the original language, we look at a couple of things. What are the other common usages of it? What's extra biblical usage of it? And is it this the only other use? Now, the reason I have 1 Timothy 2.12 is because, for those of you who don't know about Ontario Community Church, we believe that women are able to, uh, to assume any role within the church. When we, uh, when we replanted Wealthy Community Church, we hired a woman teaching pastor, lead pastor, for the church. And there, it wasn't about the idea of gender equality. It had nothing to do with that. It just was she was the most competent uh, senior pastor that applied, and that's why we hired her for that. Because we believe that to be something the Bible talks about. But again, you get to come to First Corinthians, the First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve, where Paul says this: "I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly." I have talked to many reform or other individuals who who tell me, just so you know, women can't be an authority or have leadership or teach because of this verse. So, in your Sunday school, do you have any women teachers? Well, yes. Oh, are there boys in the class? Yes. Oh, well, then you're sitting. Because I don't think that the scripture tells me an age discrepancy to you. Second thing I say to them is, hey, let's take a look at that word authority. Fine. Well, did you know that that word authority that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, is the only time he uses that word in the entire New Testament. Ah, so what does the word mean? Well, just so you know, I did a deep dive study book about seven years ago and wrote about a 33-page paper on it. Authenteo is the word that Paul uses. Authenteo is an interesting word. The reason Paul doesn't use it anywhere else in the Bible, authenteo doesn't mean authority. It means authority that's taken with violence. What are you talking about? Timothy is a pastor in a place called Ephesus. Ephesus is a matriarchal cultural uh, uh, area. So all the predominant temples in Ephesus are to Aphrodite, to Diana, to Artemis, to all the female deities, and also Amazonian culture and Amazonian uh, 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 women fighters is also predominant. So what's happening in Ephesus is women were killing men to take power from them. That's a fun fact, because usually it's the other way around. I, I'm all for women uh, equality, so hey, why not? Women should kill men then too, uh, absolutely. But the reason why Paul uses this word here and nowhere else is because it, it is addressing a particular issue going on in the church in Ephesus. Huh, interesting. So what's interesting, or I think there's everything interesting about that, is that it's, it's really important to understand the context. Let's go on with head coverings. The Greeks' self-identity rose most from their speech and education. While our, Roman, while our Roman often distinguished himself, while our Roman, I'm just that wrong. While our Roman often dis distinguished himself by what he wore, it was not great and skewed 
clear to them that in Romans that the habitual propensity of Romans to wear head apparel in liturgical settings stood in sharp contrast to the practice of others. Here's what Edward II is saying. Greeks didn't care about what you looked like, they cared about the content. Romans cared about what you looked like. So this particular head covering idea is a very Roman uh, task to it. There's a guy by the name of Thomas A. McGinn, he wrote this uh, really big book, but the title has got to catch you kind of interesting, right? Prostitution, Sexuality, and the Law in the Ancient Rome. And he has this one phrase that's quoted a lot, and I love this, is this, you were what you wore. Now, is there an equivalent to this idea today? I don't think so, but I think there are some ideas, right? Like, what you wear kind of talks about what, what you what, what you like. Um, for my birthday this past year, uh, my, my kids got me a Scotty Barnes jersey. Uh, for those of you who don't know who is Scotty Barnes is, uh, Scotty Barnes is, he was a rookie of the year for the Toronto Raptors, right? So I was going to wear my Scotty Barnes jersey this morning, but I thought that was too pretentious. But the point is, if I walked around Toronto with a Scotty Barnes jersey on, you know I like Scotty Barnes, you know I like the Raptors, and you know I'm an intelligent person because of course I'm wearing a Scotty Barnes uh, jersey, right? These are all things you can insinuate. But our clothing is that important, but it tells a little bit about us, right? Likewise, it's even more so in the Roman Empire. So look, look where this idea of male head coverings comes from. If you've ever seen ancient sculptures, you will see Romans with their head covering like this. This sculpture was taken from a relief in a uh, temple in, uh, in the Roman Empire. The covering of the man's head, called the Capitit Velato, was commonplace in Roman religious cults. The social elite took an active part in the religious cult of the city by serving as priests, and thus who had joined the church, and thus those who had joined the church may have introduced this Roman cultural norm into Christian worship. So what would happen is, is that you could be a participant, you could just be sitting there, right? But if I said to you, hey, I want you to come up and, and, and lead worship, or I want you to come up and pray, well, if it's the Roman times, what you would do is you'd put your, you'd cover your head and you'd come forward. That's why Paul says you men should cover their heads, not women. Uh, men should not have their heads covered, but women should have their head covers, because Paul wants to have a distinction between Roman cultic practices and Christian practices. I, I came across an interesting story of a woman named Perpetua. Perpetua was a martyr in the 2nd century uh, AD. Look, we have a record of her being killed, and look what it says. This is from her own personal diary. She is being accused, are you a Christian? I am, she answered. Then he passed the sentence to all of us and condemned us to the peace. This is the, uh, the Roman uh, counselor of the area, who is going to take all Christians and now kill them. Tertullian then records her death. Look what he says. Then she summoned her brother and spoke to him, Stand fast in faith and love one another, and be not offended by our sufferings. Perpetua was tossed into the ring. This is where wild animals are. Then, having asked for a pen, she fastened her disordered hair, for it was not seemly that a martyr should suffer with her hair disheveled, lest she should seem to mourn in her hour of glory. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to get eaten by a lion, I'm not really sure if I care what my hair looks like. But understand something. She's Roman. She's living in a Roman culture. She feels it's, 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 it's inappropriate for her hair to be all disheveled down. And again, this woman has, 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 has a whole different, uh, she's on a whole different level, right? Because she's not going, hey, I'm about to be eaten by a lion. She's like, make sure we're well looking good. And again, I think I can expect that a little bit, but it's about propriety, right? So we go, oh, now let's take a look at this idea of women. By the way, I'm going to summarize all this at the end here because I know lots of information. This poll hate women. Race 
got this commentary on this, which is this. It is significant to note that both men and women were free to exercise ministry. Both could pray and prophesy, as we have seen from other passages of scripture and will come to see most clearly in the 14th chapter, spoiler alert, prophesying is what today we call preaching. It is expounding the word of God, taking the scriptures and making them shine and illuminate life. Either a woman or a man could do that, but it was very important how they did it. That is the emphasis this passage makes. They must do it in two different ways. The, ma the male as a man, the woman as a woman. That is the central emphasis of this text. We go, oh, okay. Brian Darren says this. Paul also says some things that we could have been shocking to the original audience that we might gloss over because our focus on head coverings and haircuts. One notable item is having women praying and prophesying, something they did not do in the Jewish synagogue. Another is the note in verse 11 and 12 that men and women are dependent upon each other. This statement, as well as 1 Corinthians 7, 4, when Paul says a marriage relationship is reciprocal and that a husband's body belongs to the wife and vice versa, was counterculture in the women were often viewed as inferior to men. Remember I said too that one of the things that the first century Christianity did to the cultures was said two things. One, women are equal to men. Two, children should be treated with safety and dignity. Because these two groups in the Roman Empire would be sold to prostitution, sold to slavery, could be used and abused in any way. Why? Patriarchal culture. What happens? Christians come along going, not cool. Everybody's made in the image of God. And so it was Christianity that actually led the charge to create the safe place for these two groups. Now let's take a look at scripture, because this is not enough to say commentaries. Is what Paul is saying here consistent throughout scripture? And the answer is no. Right? As a matter of fact, when Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he doesn't talk about men and women, head coverings, or anything else. What does he say to them? He says this, listen. Stop identifying yourself by the labels that culture puts on you. There's no more male or female. There's no more Jew or Gentile. There's no more slave or free. We are all one in Christ. But now look, people don't realize the rest of the verse. Look who says at the end here. It says, you are, you are his heir and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Why does Paul bring up Abraham in this idea? Because isn't it enough to say, by the way, no labels are applicable to you. Instead, just focus it on Christ. Now, what's interesting is, Abraham was the uh, patriarch which the Abrahamic covenant extends to all, right? Jesus, right, in Luke chapter 13, verse 6, calls a woman daughter of Abraham. By the way, this is the first time this ever happens. Daughter of Abraham was not a term that was used in the Bible. Jesus is the first one to do it. And what Jesus was doing to the Jewish listeners, saying, listen, you think, as we see in the first Chronicles, that only the sons of Abraham will receive God's promise, his blessing, his covenant. Jesus says, uh-uh, women will also receive this as well, too. Uh, Romans chapter 16 is a kind of a cool chapter because if you don't believe women can be in leadership, you should probably take a black sharpie and erase this chapter from your Bible because there's so many women mentioned in this chapter where Paul is commanding them. What I found interesting is when I looked at, uh, uh, like, like if you just Google it, does Paul the Apostle hate women? Well, let me tell you, you will have like literally the first, I think, 11 pages of, of Google was basically, yes, Paul hates women, Christianity hates women, it's patriarchal, misogynistic, and you're like, well, that must be it. Until you go to page 12, they go, oh, wait a minute, maybe there's more. Romans chapter 16 uh, 
gives us uh, a brief glimpse of leadership in the early church, but shows us that women occupy these places. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a diaconos, deacon, in the church in, in uh, Sennacria. Now, a deacon was an individual who served, who led uh, men and women within the church. Uh, verse 3. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry. I've taught about Priscilla before, but there are four times when the word phrase Priscilla and Aquila are used in the Bible. Of the four times, Aquila is only mentioned the first time once, the next time three times. Priscilla is mentioned every time. Why? Because according to the early church and early church documents, Priscilla was the pastor. How do we know this? The largest uh, cemetery in Rome was named after Priscilla. Now that seems kind of weird, doesn't it? That a cemetery would be named after a woman? Well, it was actually a great honor. Right? It was actually a great honor for uh, a cemetery where the dead in Christ shall rise, that idea, would be named after people. So prominent places like that were named after prominent people. Well, in about uh, 17 years ago, when archaeologists were digging, they found this, they found this uh, head headstone, and it says, uh, the Latin phrase was uh, crematorium de Priscilla, or something like that, basically the, the grave of Priscilla. So we know that Priscilla was actually the pastor, and Quill was her husband. And we also know, too, that Priscilla mentored Paul the Apostle, yes, Jeremy Wright, when he was starting his early days of Christianity. Uh, verse 6, Give my greetings to Mary, who has worked so hard for your benefit. That word work is the same uh, uh, same word that Paul applies to men as well as to his ministry in the Gospel. Verse 7, Greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the Apostles who became followers of Christ before I did. Junia is a Greek transliteration of Julia. Now what's interesting about this is that what that tells us is that a woman held the highest level of leadership in the early church was an apostle. And so what we see here is that a woman, uh, a woman was there. Finally, verse 12, greets Trifina and Tryphosa, whose women were, who work hard in the Lord. Uh, Romans, uh, uh, verse 12 there. So, lots of information. Let me summarize to you all three points and put them in context for you. Headship used in this context is unclear at the worst, and it's most clear points towards origin. Remember what Paul says. He goes back to Genesis a couple of times as we were, you know, the, for the first time, a woman came from a man, but after that, women, men come from women, right? The only time in history that man gave birth was in Genesis, right? The rib, right? But after that now, according to that, then it, it goes that way, right? So that's why Paul brings us back to origins. Head coverings is a clearly a current cultural issue, as there are no other New Testament passages that urge, uh, that urge the reader to replicate this behavior. Pause there. So, we saw head coverings there, so what I did is I looked through all the letters of the New Testament and looked at where Paul was going to say, by the way, Galatia, Antioch, Corinth, Thessalonica, pick, pick, uh, pick, pick another uh, church, right? You should be wearing head coverings. If this was meant to be something that everybody should do, Paul would mention more than that. But just so you know, this set of verses is the only time Paul ever makes this assumption. That's actually kind of important. Why? Because then we know that it's not, it's not normative, but it's for this particular uh, time and space. And finally, and with women, Paul is clear that women and men participate in the kingdom based on whom the Spirit would choose. Let me close. I really want to go back to verse 11 and 12, because it's interesting, it's in all the commentaries, 
that we're trying to, trying to espouse that women cannot be in leadership, that women should wear head coverings. No one talks about these verses. Right? Because again, buried within all of this is this important part here. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Now, why I think this is kind of beautiful, why these two verses really kind of encapsulate everything I'm trying to say here this morning, is that when we look at the Bible, it's so easy for us to take a, take a story, take a portion of scripture, and make it everything. Right? And like I said, this is why these few verses, verses 2 to 16, is our Rorschach test. Right? Because if you think the, if you think Christianity is misogynistic, here's your proof. If you think Paul's sexist, ta-da! Right? If you believe that, 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 that somehow women have a lesser place in the kingdom, but see, this is how culture views the Bible. We as Christ followers, we have to be a little bit smarter. And I would say better well-read. Better well-read. More well-read. Read more. Okay? Like, if we just have to say to ourselves, is this really the entirety of it? And I've just showed you uh, a little bit. I've taught on women leadership before. And just so you know, back when I was in Bible college, young, vibrant, full of ideas, and dumb as a bag of hammers, um, I actually believe that maybe perhaps women couldn't be because of these verses. It wasn't until my mentor, Dr. Ron Kidd, after class one day, I said to him, Dr. Kidd, you seem to think that women should be in leadership, but clearly in 1 Timothy it tells us they can't. Obviously, you're way smarter than me. Could you explain to me why? So he took me down to his office, and for two hours, he went through Scripture. But he didn't just go through Scripture, he went through the first 300 years of Christianity and pointed out time and time again for women in leadership. And here's what I realized. One, I was wrong. But two, I didn't read the Bible in its entirety. That I had just taken that portion of scripture, or one part of it, and made it everything. And he changed my mind. And he didn't change my mind because he was eloquent and smart. He's both. But he points out the Bible. He said to me, if you believe 1 Timothy 2.12 is actually proscriptive for everything within Christianity, then you're going to have a hard time explaining Romans chapter 16, chapter 3, and again, all the other verses. But not just in the New Testament, just so you know, in the Old Testament, there are women in leadership as well. So, what he made me realize is that I was doing what I accused other people of doing, and having this kind of like blinders on my eyes, and only looking at the scripture that I liked and agreed with me. And what he made me, made me do was that he said, okay, you have to read the entirety and then Because I would see God as I wanted him to be, not as he is. This is a danger for all of us. The only reason I did through this scripture, and again, I, I, I'm sorry, hashtag sorry, not sorry, that I went as deep as I did and showed you all the commentaries that did. I want to show you a great deal of controversy with this passage. But the controversy is not about head coverings or shaved or unshaved or whatever. The controversy is these verses. These verses tell us something that's really important, which I think our culture has kind of forgotten today. Men and women, we need each other. But not just in a romantic sense, in, in, in a marriage sense, we need each other within the body of Christ. This is why at UCC, we encourage whoever would like to be part of, of our team to be part of what we do. Why? Because we don't look at saying, well, just because you're a woman, you should be kids ministry. But we're going we're gonna to separate the boys, you know, these boys, because you know, we don't want you to do that. But instead to go, you know what? In the kingdom of heaven, according to the Holy Spirit, who he will choose, he will be. 
themselves. And that's how that's that's kind of our, our mandate in regards to the world. And so the reason I did this morning is I want to show you that sometimes there are parts of the Bible we have to dig a little bit deeper. We have to ask ourselves, is this a message that translates to us today, or is it simply cultural? Head coverings, women, shaved head, not shaved head, long hair, not long hair. Cultural. Why? Well, doesn't repeat it, doesn't emphasize it, so we go, ah, okay. And so my encouragement for each of you, and again, this is more, this may have been more of an academic sermon as opposed to any other ones, but it's to say, stop defining God by your own preferences. Stop defining scripture by what you wish to interpret. And instead, accept God for who he is, and be a student at his feet through scripture so you have a better understanding. And that's what my encouragement Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. We, we do this every week. The question I want you to think about, ponder, reflect on. Is there a part of your understanding of who and what God is that has been colored, has been uh, filtered by culture? 